Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. Hello and welcome everyone to the Veteran Founder Podcast right here on the Startup Radio Network. I am your host, Josh Carter. Carmen is out for the summer. We hope she, she's doing well and we hope to see her in the fall. If this is your first time listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast, welcome. We spend every Friday sitting down to chat with an incredible founder who just so happens to have an extraordinary thing on the resume, which is service to our country. And this week we have a returning guest, Army Vet and CEO of Warrior Centric Health, Ron Steptoe. Welcome back to the program, sir. Josh, it's an absolute pleasure to be back with you guys. Yeah, uh, I am super thrilled that you're back. I'd love to. You have such a cool background. And for those that haven't, uh, haven't heard your story, let's sort of rewind the tape a little bit and give somebody, uh, give some of our listeners sort of uh, some context around this. Talk about your background and why you decided to go in the Army. All right. So um, it is a unique background. So first of all, let's start with the fact that uh, I went to a military Catholic high school, if you can imagine the combination of the two of that, right, in Washington, D.C., from the time I was in the seventh grade all the way through the 12th. So it was a little bit tweaked towards the military and then had an opportunity to go to West Point. But before I get into the West Point story, let's go way back in reference to my family's background. Right. So um, my family background actually goes back to the founding of the country. And, and it's a unique story specifically as an African-American because, again, my uh, fifth great-grandfather, James Bowser I, you can look this up, um, it was one of 5,000 African-Americans that uh, fought during the Revolutionary War. And they were based out of Virginia in the Tidewater area, which is like Suffolk, Portsmouth, uh, Norfolk area. And the reason the story is quite interesting is because as uh, General Cornwallis was making his southern route up to actually attack Yorktown, he came in initially through Georgia, moved up through South Carolina to North Carolina. And just as he was trying to approach with the British troops towards uh, in Virginia and the Yorktown, uh, my fifth great grandfather enlisted in September of 1780. And as we know, the Battle of Yorktown took place in uh, 1781. And so he was a part of that. What was really interesting was that there were probably about 200,000 Continental Army uh, soldiers and Navy individuals uh, that participated, about 100,000 militia. But he actually was in the Continental Army. His son, who enlisted in January 1st of 1782, was part of the cleanup, basically helping uh, Cornwallis and his people get the heck up out of here. And so uh, for their service, though, uh, they were uh, rewarded with each um, one of the nation's first um, veterans benefit, which was a land bounty. So they each got 200 acres of land. And in addition to that, uh, when the first standing army uh, took place, uh, General George uh, Washington uh, obviously set up a standing army for the United States. They both enlisted and served four years in the nation's first standing army. 
also a tremendous uh, family history. And as African-Americans, they were free. Um, They were landowners. And so obviously that was very unique, especially since only about 1% of folks of African descent that were here in the United States were actually free. And then uh, the family, uh, you know, continues on into the early uh, 1800s. And then we come upon the Civil War. And the Civil War, James Bowser IV, who's my third great-grandfather, was a freeman. Uh, business owner, ten kids, um, and he found he thought it was you know really interesting because here he was a free man, but yet other people weren't free, and he always thought that his family's freedom was suspect, especially since his kids had to walk around with ID cards that says "Don't pick us up, we're not slaves." And so, because he had this, um, you know, was conflicted very much of his status and status, but also those of of others. And even though he was part of the land gentry, although not you know, technically a part of the white land gentry, but land the gentry nonetheless, uh, he decided that he was going to become a union intelligence officer or a spy, which he did become. And um, unfortunately, he was caught and captured and was beheaded on the property that we got in the, uh, as part of the land grab from the Revolutionary War. And what makes the story pretty um you know, pronounced and interesting um, is because um, our family never spoke of James Bowser III. I really grew up not knowing nothing about him. I knew about the Revolutionary War part. And in 2011, the Associated Press did a piece on black spies of the Civil War. And they mentioned people we've heard of before, uh, such as Harriet Tubman, Mary Bowser, no relation though, that was in the Confederate White House with a photographic memory, sending out a lot of the war plans that uh, Jefferson um, had basically, um, the Confederate um, general basically had stated that uh, he was going to be you know, moving forward with, um, excuse me, that's President Jefferson Davis, but actually uh, General Lee were actually reviewing both of their plans and actually sending that out to the Union, and that's basically how they knew what was going on. And it was interesting because one of the things that General Lee said is that um, our biggest downfall are our Negroes uh, because they were spying, and my grandfather was listed as one of those eight that they did in the piece. Unfortunately, his claim to fame in the context of that piece was that he was the example of what happens when a slave, excuse me, when a spy got caught and was uh, was beheaded on the property. So one of the things that the union did was tore up all the records of anyone that was a spy because they didn't want uh, the retaliation to come about. So imagine now um, uh, my grandmother basically and her kids having to forget that their father even existed. Wow. And so uh, it wasn't until 2013 when I read the 2011 article that I was able to put the pieces um, to, to, together. So one of the things that I recognize is what we call pride and pain, right? Yeah. Um, the pride of obviously service, but also the pain of what happens uh, with service. And we see that happening today with our service members, veterans, and their families. Immense amount of pride, but also pain from the wounds and the injuries and just the toil of war. And so one of the things that I committed to, understanding that this could have nine generation impact was making sure that we were in the healing business of our service members, veterans, and their families with the work that we do at Warrior Central Health. So that's one of the strong motivations behind what we do. When you got into the military in the in the uh, Army Academy or uh, the West into West Point, you know part of that is that process is like you have to write an essay and uh, someone has to sort of you know sponsor you into that. 
When you were going into West Point, did you know about all this stuff? And did you write about that as part of your entry into West Point? No, I didn't. Actually, I did not wow. at all. I, uh, it's interesting, right? Uh, no, I didn't. I knew about the Revolutionary War part, but no, I didn't write about that. And, and West Point, and I was recruited by West Point Naval Academy and VMI. I was a fairly decent basketball player uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. In fact, one of the top basketball players in the uh, in this area. But if you weren't from... If you weren't from West Point Naval Academy or BMI, I didn't talk to you. I literally tore the letters up because wow. I knew what I wanted to go, uh, what I wanted to go do. And I was fortunate at my school. I was the number two in command at St. John's College High School as uh, as one of the uh, first battalion commander there. Um, we uh, actually had a regiment, and so I was uh, first battalion commander, star basketball player, uh, president, uh, excuse me, vice president of student council. Um, so, you know, pretty active student all the way around, honor roll student and all those types of things. So those were the things I spoke about a bit more about uh, going to the academy. It was a bit more just the achievement there. I wish I had known as much as I know now to tell the story. <laughs> well, I mean, what's, but, what's uh, remarkable like, about it is, you know, you, you get into it just it's something that it sounds like was just sort of ingrained in your DNA. Like this part of you was just part of it. Like this whole service to country is just part of your DNA, man. Well, it's interesting you bring it up. So my, my grandfather, my mother's father, used to say to my, my, uh, my mother when I was real small, she says, you need to watch him because if I saw a uniform like a policeman or a fireman or anybody in uniform, my eyes would like gaze at them and literally start tracking them. And my grandfather was like, he's going to get picked up or something like that. Y'all need to watch that dude. And this is an interesting story. So I'm in Washington, D.C. My parents moved up here to Washington um, when I was literally nine months old um, and, um, uh, you know, go through the public school system. And my mom was like, um, you know what, um, I, I, I think he I, I'm interested in seeing if we might look at putting him in a private school. And so um, the interesting thing is my my people, my, my folks were working class uh, people. So literally my mom's entire salary went to me going to school and my dad's uh, salary took care of the bills and the house and stuff. But I remember my dad, you talk about fortuitous, right? We went to a McDonald's that happened to be probably about two miles away from the school called St. John's College High School. And St. John's actually has uniforms that are very much at the time before they switched to the um, more of the military, um, you know, greens of the Army. They used to have uh, the capes and stuff like what you see at VMI and at West Point, these uniforms. And when these students walked in, they were in high school, when they walked into the McDonald's, my grandfather's words, I just started to gawk at them. And I was like, who and what is that? And my dad was like, oh, they go to the school up here called St. John's High, that's College High School. I couldn't wait to get home and to ask my mom, mom, what is it about the school? Who are these people? What is that? And literally, that started the process. And my mom was thinking about, I don't know if I want to, I want to, you know, maybe we need to look at putting him in a different type of school. Uh, I'm not sure what's going on. And so this, you're right, something in my genes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it has to be. Yeah. No, it it was a calling, right? I mean, that's the only way I can think uh, about how to describe this remarkable journey that you've gone, given your family's generational history. It's just, uh, it's, it's unique as we, as we said at the beginning. So you're in, you're in the, the, the army. What did you do in the army? 
So I was a field artillery officer uh, during the time that I was in the uh, Army uh, 155 school. Uh, Red Lake, loved it. Um, so I was a, uh, initially started out as a, a forward observer. Um, I was stationed at the 194th Armored Brigade, uh, which is at, was based out of uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky. They had a, both a, a force comm mission, Force Comm mission and a TRADOC mission. Uh, Force Comm is obviously um, ready to go, deploy, fight, do what we need to get done, take care of uh, America's business. And the TRADOC mission, being at the Armor School, was also making sure that we provided uh, training as uh, folks were going through the, the Armor School. So we, in training us um, missions, or if you will, while they were training, took care of uh, providing uh, fire support uh, as they were going through moving their tanks and making sure that they, as we, you know, we had artillery rounds you know, firing around them and all that stuff, trying to make the training as lively as possible. So when we weren't out uh, either going to the National Training Center or down to Fort Bliss, Texas, or going to um, Canada on joint exercises, and actually had an opportunity to do the first simulation um, that took place in Germany, um, Reforger, which had been the 1990 um, Reforger. Yeah, it was 1990 Reforger um, was the and I had the fortune of actually being in charge of the fire direction uh, center during that simulation. So I had a chance to bounce around Germany uh, a, a bit. So uh, that was my that was my um, time that I spent really in the Army Army, if you will. And then my wife and I, my wife's also my classmate from West Point, um, we had a chance to go back um, to West Point for a year and a program called uh, Project Outreach, which really looks at educating um, high school students about uh, the opportunities of West Point, but with a specific focus on um, African-Americans, Latino, uh, people of color. Um, so I had a lot of time to spend uh, time working with uh, students, just letting them know that, you, uh, that West Point and the academy and the military is looking for all of its people from all different backgrounds, and that West Point is a place that they could look to pursue as an opportunity. When you were at West Point, you played basketball. Was the experience for you different than, say, regular cadets going through the academy? Uh, yes, I actually will have to say that. Now, obviously, Beast Barracks is Beast Barracks, and everybody has that experience. No one is spared that joy. Um, but uh, So that goes, obviously, from uh, July until August, and then we move into the academic year in September. But pretty much because basketball starts, uh, the official date starting like October 15th, uh, September, early part of September, we really started to uh, really get in conditioning and training. So uh, I had the opportunity to have a, a great great deal of focus on with my basketball actually um, being, I wouldn't call it away from the core, if you will, but it, it, we, the Division One sports, we spent a lot of time making sure that we were able to compete. So uh, a lot of the military activities and things that took place, at least during the academic year, um, I was on the friend, the field of friendly strife, as we would say, uh, competing on behalf of my, uh, my cadet uh, classmates as well as uh, just other cadets, making sure we had a good showing there. However, during the summer, uh, we obviously were uh, actively involved in all the training that we needed to uh, we needed to have and and, and I must say that uh, again I, I came again from this military thing right mm -hmm. so uh, even though I'm a core squad athlete and, you know, sometimes we get a bum rap for, you know, saying that we're, you know, um, you know, ghosting and, and stuff, uh, that wasn't necessarily me. Uh, when I was in the field and when I was uh, training, had the opportunity, I was all out. And in fact, 
Um, I found out actually my senior year that I actually had a military grade of an A+. Plus, and that uh, A-plus actually led to uh, me being um, selected to be uh, a battalion commander during our uh, during my senior year, what we call our first year. And so uh, there, uh, it was one of the top 17 positions uh, at the academy. Nice. Nice. What, what surprised you about your experience at the academy? Was anything surprising or anything that you weren't expecting that, that it ended up happening at, at your, during your time at the academy? So yeah, that's a that's a good that's a good question, and um, and I'm going to answer it two ways. From a military perspective, no, nothing surprised me um, because again, I spent from the seventh grade into the twelfth grade in this kind of military very regiment uh, environment. So that was like second nature to me. I, I loved it; it wasn't an issue at all. It was the academics that I was like, oh, whoa, wait a second. Uh, I thought I was prepared. <laughs> okay, with what I did, you know, and, 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 and again, I didn't go to any slouch school either. It was St. John's College High School, you know, college preparatory school, uh, was National Honor Society, all that type of stuff. But what I did not anticipate was the grueling schedule of Division One sports, the load that we had to take at the academy, and trying to manage all of that in addition to the fact that, you know, and you didn't fully skate being a Corp Squad athlete. You still had to come back, okay, to the barracks and stuff. And, you know, you still had to do your duties and a whole bunch of other stuff. So it was just the – there was no time. There was no downtime. There was no downtime. And so how do you manage that? And then, uh, you know, coming back, you know, late night, let's say, for example, we played in Connecticut, as an example, we played Fairfield. Uh, well, you know, is that an overnight trip? Well, yeah, it may have been to get up there to, you know, to go and to, you know, have a practice day before, play the game. But after the game, we're back, driving back from, uh, from, from Connecticut, from Fairfield, mm-hmm. going, in, uh, going back to West Point. We show up maybe 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, okay, um, you might miss one class, but you got to be back in class. And if you miss that one class, you got to make it up. They don't care. Right. Get, you got to get the work done. So that was one of the toughest things for me to uh, to to try to manage uh, to try to manage um, that. But I was able to um, was able to uh, manage uh, through that uh, process. Although I did wind up failing um, complete math my second year because we we're in the heart of the academic um, heart of the heart of the athletic season, if you will, mm. and um, that was obviously very disheartening. But it wound up being the best thing that happened to me uh, because I went to summer school, wound up getting an A minus, and that provided a very very solid foundation for me with all the other uh, uh, classes that we had because as as most folks uh, may or may not know West Point is really an engineering school and so uh, you've got to have a strong foundation and uh, in your math skills in order to make it through uh, uh, through through the academy so it wound up being a blessing in disguise that I actually did fail um, fail uh, uh, fail calculus uh, because I got a chance to get that foundation in the summer school yeah yeah you're listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. We've been talking to Ron Stepto, CEO of Warrior Centric Health. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. 
They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to healthcare, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. And we're back. We've been chatting with Army Vet and CEO of Warrior Centric Health, Ron Steptoe. So, Ron, I want to talk a little bit about after the Army. You transitioned out uh, in the 90s, right? And you and I have been out for a long time. I got out in 97. So we've been out for a long time. But you've had a really interesting career in health. Like, what, what got you into the health industry? Yeah, so right after the first Gulf Wars, you know, they were going through and talking about potentially riffing uh, re- reduction in force of, uh, of service members uh, just because I guess we thought that we had uh, really got a handle on our adversaries. And so um, that's when the downsizing took place. And so, you know, they were saying there was, you'd be a captain basically forever. <laughs> and so uh, my wife and I, while we were still up at West Point um, during the uh, recruiting um, stint, uh, we decided to transition. My wife actually became pregnant with our with our son Jordan, and so we made the decision to go ahead and transition. And we happened to be very fortunate to both get hired by a company by the name of Pfizer. Now, what's interesting about Pfizer at the time was that uh, they were about to make what I call their big move in the market. And just to give you an idea of what I mean by that, so when we started with the company, they were doing about six billion dollars in revenue. Just fourteen years later they were doing $46 billion in revenue and had launched, um, I mean, so many uh, products in the pharmaceutical um, uh, arena. And one of the things that they were very purposeful in doing is hiring a ton of junior military officers, JMOs. It was like Fort Pfizer. It was like I didn't leave the military. I was just wearing a civilian suit. And so they basically got people that knew how to get up every day, get the job done, and head out in the field and do the things we need to do to, uh, to make the company successful. And, uh, and that was very purposeful, and you, you could see that, uh, see that happen. So it was a great experience for me. I actually moved back to the Washington, D.C. area. It was the market that I had. My wife actually had Baltimore. Uh, interesting enough, leases from Columbia, Maryland. I'm from D.C., but we didn't know each other until our freshman year at West Point. Mm-hmm. And so we basically, basically both came back home. And so that we both have been in the healthcare field now going on 30, 30 plus uh, 30 years. And what was what was her uh, what did she do in, at West Point? What was her sort of M.O.? Yeah, so Lisa, that's a good, good question. So Lisa was a geek. Uh, she's, uh, she was Dean's List, seven of eight semesters at the Academy. Wow. She overachiever. Was, yeah, <laughs> math major with a minor in electrical, electrical engineering. Wow. And the math major she had was theoretical math. I still ask her today, what, what is theoretical math? What does that mean? <laughs> I love okay. it. It's like yeah. math poetry, so, right? I think if I'm understanding it right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. So um, so with that being uh, said, so uh, Lisa was really um, you know, very studious, and so she really um, she said she was a basketball groupie. So you know the great thing about uh, cadets is that when you have if we went on a, what they call a trip section. So when we were going to connect, we're going to Connecticut to Fairfield or going on a trip uh, that was away. You, sometimes you will see cadets that 
traveled um, to be a part and to be in the stands and support the team. So as many trip sections as Lisa could go on, she would to be uh, a part of obviously supporting the team as one of the cadets there. And because she was a brainiac, she could obviously go because she didn't have any problems with academics. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So you you guys met, and then uh, how was that? When you were you guys deployed in different areas, or you guys sort of stayed in the same area? Yeah, we were very fortunate to stay in the same area as you right. may um, remember. They had, and they still do have, the Army's Married Couples Program. Yeah. So we got married um, actually ten days after graduation. We actually were engaged at the academy uh, for two years. I actually um, I asked her to marry me in between the sophomore junior year, which we call our yearling year and cow year. You know, it's four thousand guys up there. I had to lock her down real quick, like <laughs> you know what I mean. So I was like, look, put the ring. Your finger. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so with that being said, but uh, we were very fortunate um, that um, when we both made decision to transition, we were able to come back here. And she was a quartermaster officer as well. Now, one of the things that I, I mentioned, I was a field artillery officer, but I did branch transfer uh, to a quartermaster because we thought that if we were going to stay in the military, that it'd be better to deal or easier to deal with one branch manager as opposed to two. Because obviously, field artillery and quartermaster may have conflicting views on what the mission set and where we should go. So uh, I did uh, officially trans, uh, transition to quartermaster, although I did not go to the officer advanced course. So uh, I'm still a redneck at heart. <laughs> nice. So you guys transition out, get in the medical field. What's the path to get to warrior centric health? Like what was it? How did you get to that point where that's what you wanted to do? Yeah, so one of the things that happened at um, at Pfizer was that um, Lisa and I, between the both of us, and obviously with the growth of the company, uh, Pfizer at the time and what they were doing, uh, I tell people it was like the Google of medicine at that time. It was crazy, right? So my management team and managers were like, Ron, you should go into management. You know, you're a great salesman and all this stuff, but really need to move you into management. I was like, ah, leave me alone. I'm fine. My stock is splitting. Leave me alone. I want to stay in the area. This is where Lisa and I are from. I don't want to travel around around the country, doing stuff, leave me alone. And so um, I wind up, um, well, they said, we got to do something with this guy, okay? He just can't sit here, as they would say, potentially rot on the vine. So I was uh, I was given an opportunity to pursue some uh, additional duties. Well, one of the additional duties that they, um, that they assigned to me or asked if I would uh, volunteer, volunteer for a uh, mandatory fund um, was working with some of the, what we consider to be, um, Association, specifically the National Medical Association, which is pretty much the African American Physician Group, the Hispanic Medical Association, um, which is the Hispanic Medical uh, Physician Group, and the Asian Pacific Islander Group, um, and def- and the National Me- Medical Association for African Americans and Hispanic uh, uh, National Hispanic Association headquarters are based in Washington D.C. A lot of associations are based in D.C., so it's pretty you know straightforward. So I had an opportunity to work with them, work with Pfizer on some of the initiatives as we were looking at um, health care disparities and health equity. Uh, as of 2020, especially with COVID, we're starting to hear a lot of people talk about health equity and the disparities that are taking place within people of color. Well, there was a lot of research and data on this for decades, and I happened to be one of the uh, initial people in industry that was focused on that, working with Pfizer to address a lot of those issues. So I knew just based on that corporate background that all things weren't equal in health care. 
And so I actually uh, designed the business model for FIAS for this ad hoc team that we had that were addressing some of these issues. I actually designed the business model on how we're going to address vulnerable populations, specifically working with the National Medical Association and the National Hispanic Medical Association. And so that's where I cut my teeth to realize, hmm, there's something here. Not sure what, but that's when I realized that vulnerable populations and that all wasn't equal was a thing. So did that as additional duty, didn't get paid any extra money, was traveling all over the country doing stuff. In fact, a lot of people were like, Ron, they're not paying you any more money. Why are you, why, why are you doing this? I mean, I'd be up at night um, sending emails after work, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, and um, even my wife was like, what are you doing? Well, what was happening was the seeds of what would become our company were taking shape and being formed, and I had an opportunity to be an entrepreneur working with Pfizer uh, on this concept with you know their resources um, to back it based on obviously their business objectives of what they're trying to achieve. But that's one of the things I share with people is really being someone that, whether it's an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur, really honing those skills. And I had the great fortune of being able to do that with a Fortune 50 company uh, in that realm. And so the way it translated to um, to become Warrior Central Health was I left the company in 2005, um, all good terms, left on my terms, and um, decided that uh, I wanted to go into business for myself. Initially, was looking at real estate development and did that for about three years, traveling all over the world, looking at different uh, opportunities, and then 2008 hit and the world crashed. And so uh, my financial planner at the time says, uh, Ron, uh, you're going through too much money. Uh, you need to figure out something. So I decided, you know what? All I know is healthcare, so let me see if I can get back into that. So really started my service-disabled veteran-owned business at the time called the Stepto Group. And um, But I didn't want to chase contracts um, and be uh, a beltway bandit in that, in that context. No offense to anybody that does that. But I'm a product guy. You know, I yeah, want to fix yeah. a problem. And so um, a friend of ours um, reached out to us and said, Ron, you know, we're starting to hear a lot of things about service members coming back. The RAND report came, uh, came out talking about Walter Reed and the Invisible Wounds of War. Report came out talking about post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, the, the, the high percentage and prevalence of the disease state uh, for veterans. And I remember going to the Association of the U.S. Army Conference, and they said, yeah, We've got, um, you know, X number of people that have gone over and been deployed at the time. I think it may have been about 1.3 or 1.4 million people um, uh, had deployed. And between the post-traumatic stress disorder of 300,000 and traumatic brain injury, another 340,000, um, I said, wait a minute, where do you go to work where damn near a third of the people go to work and their brains get scrambled? Mm. That tells you disparities. That's a problem. Something's going on here. And so I started to just think about all the things we were looking at with other vulnerable populations, and I said, wait a second, I need to look into this. Are there other conditions that service members, veterans, and their families are suffering from? And that's when we began to discover that, in fact, they were, you know, and realizing that putting two and two together, you have the healthiest people in America go into service, and when you look at all the data and the studies, they come out the other side with higher incidences of chronic health conditions like hypertension, uh, hypercholesterolemia, uh, diabetes, you name it, we're just, we have a higher prevalence of. Right. And I was, I said, wait a second, this, this sounds like something I used to work on. I said, okay, you know what? 
we're going to pull all the best practices that we were working on with the people of color and other different uh, social uh, demographic groups, and I'm going to focus that right now on addressing this issue that um, the RAND Corporation made a recommendation that a training program need to be put together that would be used not only by the Department of Defense, also by the VA and also by the commercial healthcare sector. And we literally walked up to Walter Reed, knocked on the door and said, look, we have some ideas. And long story short, we got a chance to work with Walter Reed, uh, actually put a training program together based on the recommendations from the RAND uh, Corporation. And then from there, we got a chance to have that alpha project uh, actually submitted up to TATRIC, which is the Telemedicine and Technology Research Center out of Fort Detrick, where all the medical uh, skunk works takes place. And then we got a second contract and the third contract to actually test out our platform at the new Walter Reed as they transition people from uh, D.C. to Bethesda and, uh, and also at Fort Hood, Texas. And that really became the, work, the working relationship we have with the Department of Defense to really test out a lot of things. And then in 2014, when the VA scandal took place, and what was interesting about that was that people were, you know, hearing that, oh, my God, the VA is crashing. They can't take, you know, they can't take care of all the people. And I'm sitting back going, wait a second now. What you guys don't know is that the VA is having the challenges, but yet only the only 30% of veterans are actually using going to the VA and registered with the VA. It's, I said, the challenge is where are the other 70%? They're in the commercial sector. I said, don't worry about the VA. They'll figure that out. What you yep. need to be concerned yep. about is 70% of vets in the commercial sector, and the commercial sector knows nothing. That's a bigger problem. Yeah. And so we decided then to shift uh, our, our business and our thinking to focus on getting the commercial healthcare sector up to speed. Uh, and we figured the DOD and the VA, they take care of themselves. Is the commercial sector where the problem was. Yeah. So how did you, what was your first commercial customer and how did you approach that? So our first commercial customer, believe it or not, actually was um, Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. So um, we were, Dr. Lewis and I, who was my co-founder of the company, um, we were actually speaking at the American Medical Association Commission in Healthcare Disparities in Nashville, Tennessee. And a person that was in the room, Dr. Robert Light, who would be an esteemed colleague of ours, um, as well as world-renowned for cultural competency, specifically focused on um, um, vulnerable populations um, from different ethnic groups, racial groups, gender groups, and, and things. And he heard us speak, and he said, after we came down off of the stage, first of all, we got a ton of questions, but afterwards he said, I've never heard that before. If what you're saying is correct, that's a major national problem. I believe our school needs to hear about this. And so a couple of months later, he set up a phone call with the deans of Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. And when we were on the phone with them, one of the deans said, that's nice that, you know, right, we should be taking care of veterans, but we don't see veterans. Hmm. And my chief medical officer, Dr. Lewis, says, how do you know that? And it was stunned silence. Because they probably don't track it, right? Didn't track it. Right. But, but she said, stunned silence. Well, I'll tell you this now. On behalf of Rutgers, because I've been faculty there for the past several years, so I'm not going to leave them hanging out there like that. They picked up the ball and said, you know what, we need to fix this. And so seven years later, we've trained over 4,000 wow. medical students allied health uh, professionals, 
and the training platform um, that we uh, began with, they've augmented, and now we, uh, Dr. Lewis and I teach two classes there a year, and so Rutgers is one of the leading medical schools um, that has consistently addressed uh, military and veteran uh, health care. So we're so proud of the effort, and they really uh, have set a national standard. In fact, they, cre- they uh, put it together, and, and the work that they did with us uh, was peer-reviewed in the Association of American Medical Colleges uh, as a best practice. So our work has also been peer-reviewed uh, by the Association of American uh, Medical Colleges. So that was our first real commercial client that we worked with, and then that led us to meet Lehigh Valley Health network that we worked with, which is in the Allentown, Bethesda, me, Allentown uh, Bethlehem, uh, Pennsylvania area. Mm-hmm. And they were critical because they began, they were the, one of the first health systems to ask the question, have you served? And when they began to ask that question, that's when we were able to get a peek into the commercial healthcare sector to realize that veterans had a higher prevalence for cardiovascular disease, pulmonary disease, uh, musculoskeletal issues, as well as um, various aspects of things. Since then, you've been able to iterate on, on this platform. You've been able to pick up new customers. How long did it take you to get from you, know, you and your co-founder to this like well-oiled running machine? took us a total of 12 years. Wow. So what's interesting about that, right, is when you look at medical innovation, what people may not be familiar with, before something becomes, uh, it takes 12, it takes 17 years, excuse me, 17 years before something becomes what we consider to be a standard of care in medicine. It's just the way it is. I mean, right. you just don't pop up with an idea and say, okay, here we go. doesn't work like that. So interestingly enough, I knew that going in. I knew that statistic. And so I knew that this would be a long slog, but if we were to work and do the things we need to do, get the peer review, just document what we've done, find great partners, and really become the subject matter experts and document that, that at the end of the day, when people start to look at our body of knowledge and the track record, that you would see the trail of a continuous improvement. And so we are now at the point where we are just about to hit that, you know, 12 years in, the next five years based on our partnerships is when that growth really takes place. And so we're really on track to be to, to fulfill that 17 years it takes to become a standard uh, to become a standard of, uh, of care. Now that you you've you built this company, what is it that you think you've learned over the years and, and what did you take from your time in the military uh, as part of this journey? Uh, teamwork and partnership. Um, that is the critical element and has been the thing that, you know, what some people say, you know, you hear people say, you know, you can try to own um, 100% of something and just be by yourself, or you could look at having 20% of something but have an incredible team behind you, and I firmly believe in that and having a bigger, bigger, uh, you know, outcome in business. So that's the approach that we've taken, and we've been very fortunate to have a lot of service academy as well as veterans and people in the healthcare field that I've been able to build a great network around that really understood uh, the work but also understood the problem. And they basically said, Ron, we understand. We understand your work. Uh, we believe. We know this is a real problem. Uh, we're willing to put our time, our effort, and our money behind this because this is a national problem. 
and we want to be a part of the solution. So being able to galvanize uh, people, understanding partnership, understanding teamwork, and understanding this was a battle. I mean, th- th- this, 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 is, this is a campaign. This is a major national issue, and the only way it was going to be addressed is with the best minds putting blood, sweat, and tears, just like we did on the battlefield, to address this issue. And it was very, very fortunate to be able to work and have that level of commitment and helping solve this problem. Amazing team um, that we've been able to coalesce, and partners as well, not just people within Warrior Central Health, but I'm talking about reaching out with the American Hospital Association. Uh, before, in 2013, when we met with them, veterans were not a vulnerable population like you have African Americans, Latinos, uh, LGBTQ, people with disabilities. Uh, veterans were, were nowhere in the calculus. Uh, we started working with them and addressing that issue, made them aware of it, and in 2016, they officially uh, categorized veterans as a vulnerable population, just like any one of those other uh, groups. So we're very proud of being able to work with them, partner, and to uh, to make that happen. Uh, working with Vizient, Vizient's the nation's largest group purchasing organization, and they do $100 billion of contracting for about 3,400 hospitals. Well, Vizient, when they heard about the work we were doing at Lehigh Valley Health Network, realized that veterans and service members, specifically veterans, had this uh, uh, higher prevalence and um, were disproportionately impacted by these disease states, and they saw the numbers from Lehigh Valley. They said, look, we've got to put, we got to write this up. We need to put this in a field guide. So that got published in an industry field guide uh, between war with Warrior Central Health, uh, Lehigh Valley Health Network, and Vizient to put this out. They said, this is a problem. We need to let folks know about that. And then we were very fortunate to then work with um, the Vizient to actually, um, they created a veterans population health uh, service offering for their hospitals to basically look at uh, having military and veteran health as a thing, just like you have women's health, you have adolescent medicine, you have geriatric care. Why in the commercial sector uh, isn't a military and veterans a thing, if you will, in reference to the specialty care. And so we are very fortunate to work with the fifth largest health system in the country that has about 90 hospitals, and they now have created, again, a military and veteran health program, and we are currently in 20 hospitals in eight states. They have 90 hospitals in 22 states, and we anticipate being in those uh, all 90 of those hospitals uh, over the next three years. That's amazing. What, what do you think the future is uh, for warrior-centric health? Where do you hope it, it is in, say, five to ten years? Well, we've been very fortunate also. Thank you very much for that question. Um, we recently won a Phase 1 Cyber Small Business Innovation Research um, Program uh, contract with the Air Force. The Air Force is doing some amazing work and really trying to work with venture-backed companies, breaking down the silos of traditional contracting. Because one of the things that uh, you'll hear the Department of Defense and the small business um, innovation research people talking about is that the Chinese and Russians are walking into Silicon Valley and literally pulling our IP and our technologies that were made here in this country and weaponizing them. We, yeah. There are various examples you can use or they're investigating companies and pulling the IP out. So the Air Force is, uh, was tasked with taking the lead and solving this problem and working at the speed of small business and with a group called AFWorks. So under that program, we were able to, um, with our population-based health solution that we're doing in the commercial sector, the Air Force uh, said, you know what, we think that uh, this is something we need to do uh, over here. There's a DHA population health mandate. So under that guise, we have been working with the Air Force, and we're now uh, looking, and uh, God willing, we'll get our phase two contract that really will help us move forward 
and scaling this within the Air Force. So what we see the future being is that Warrior Central Cal will be that bridge between what's happening in the commercial sector and what's happening in the Department of Defense. So when we have someone that is a dependent or a family member or a retiree, active duty, whenever they go out into the commercial sector, the same education and training of providers that from a population health perspective that is taking place within the Department of Defense is also happening in the commercial sector. And Warrior Center Health is that bridge of information, data, education that everyone's being trained on the same platform. That is the vision and that's where that is what we're executing against right now. I love it. Where can people find you? So they can find us on uh, Facebook, Warrior Center Health Facebook, obviously our website, which is warriorcentrichealth.com, and also Twitter and LinkedIn. I love it. Ron, thank you so much for coming back. I really appreciate it, and congratulations on all your success. And uh, let's let's do this a third time when you know when you guys have grown to, uh, you know, and, and there's, uh, there's some more progress and, and would love to get an update. We'll love it. We really appreciate you guys. You guys do a great job here. Thanks, Ron. We really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast. Tune in every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific on the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, get stuff done. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.